Hello again. This is, as always, the podcast of the book, Around Serie A in 20 Days, my journey across the sights, sounds and stadia of Serie A. I am, and will for some time continue to be, Michael Nimmel, your author, narrator and general good time guy. So before we get going with today's episode and my journey to see Livorno, I'd just like to thank you if you've subscribed to the podcast or my blog. I really appreciate it. I'm recording these podcasts for you. So as a special audio kind of postcard, insert name, thank you very much for downloading my podcast, insert name. You're great, insert name. So, thanks, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Ciao! Waving the claret flag. My trip to see Livorno play Parma. New year, new hopes. Resolutions litter the ground like empty bottles and cans after a Hogmanay street party, as doomed from inception as a political coalition. Good intentions, maybe not paving the road to hell, but certainly as fanciful as finding a real wizard at the end of the yellow brick road. Same old road trips for yours truly, though. So, after a wee break in Scotland with my at one time nearests, but still dearests, Returning to my pleasant little reality in Italy meant hitting the road to watch football. Time seemed to have flown since August and my trip to see Torino. In two weeks, the andata leg of the season would draw to a close. Andata ritorno refers to the first and second halves of the season, respectively. And this would be my last match of the andata. By then, 19 matches would have been played by everyone, and I'd have seen nine. Seeing as there are 20 teams, a quick bit of maths showed that I was a game behind. Easily sorted that, it just meant that I wouldn't be spending weekends at home much in what would be a football-tastic February. Before all that though, a trip to Tuscany and Livorno beckoned. I'd previously been to Tuscany a few times, never to watch football, but just as a plain old tourist. If you wouldn't mind me swapping my football watching hat for a travel writer's beret for a moment, if you go to Tuscany, I'd recommend from all the other places I've seen that you get yourself to San Gimignano. Perched on a hill, it's a wee old town with some lovely architecture and fantastic views of rolling vineyards on all sides. It's not so much that the other places I've seen weren't really beautiful too, just that in San Gimignano I found the perfect combination of sun, good company, and enough to look at while not being overwhelmed by the history. Plus, it has the seemingly obligatory in Tuscany torture museum for you to stumble around if that's what floats your boat, you ghoul. The game was a Saturday evening kickoff, so travelling was all pretty easy and relaxed. You know when you have loads of time to do something, so you faff around so much that you end up making yourself late? I hope so, because I wouldn't like to be the only one in that stupid boat. I arrived in Livorno at around 2, and despite the game starting at 6, I had to run to get in the stadium on time, but more on that later. What to do when you have nothing to do, and hours to not be doing it in Livorno, I wondered. As one, the city sleepily murmured back to me, We don't have much to offer, I'm sorry. So, after an all-too-quick sandwich, which I tried my best to stretch out for as long as was feasible, The rest of the afternoon saw me meandering about and generally murdering as much time as possible. The most interesting thing about Livorno that I could see was the canal they have that surrounds the old town, 
so I wandered as bored as a lonely cloud around it for a while. A couple of gratuitous coffees and cigarettes later, and it was time for me to try to find a contact that I'd been fixed up with. At this stage, I should thank Melissa and Marcello for helping me out with this, and it was they who'd instructed me to find the bar where I'd meet him. His name was Mr Lenti. He was 90 years old and the president of a supporters club. So, before setting off to find the bar, I helped myself to another coffee for the road. Then, standing outside for a phone signal, because it seemed that all shops and bars in Livorno are a reception black spots, even though they're not exactly in the bowels of the earth, I found out that the bar I was looking for was the one I was standing outside of, and had just been in. My internal compass, when I'm not trying, is spot on. The barman, when asked about Mr Lenti, ushered me through to the club's meeting room, which while sounding rather grand, in reality was the yard out the back. There, I found him wearing brown-tinted wraparound sunglasses, which a large number of elderly Italians sport. It's something which used to strike me as rather incongruous, as trendy sunglasses and the aged don't go hand in hand, at least to my mind. I doubt my grandparents wore sunglasses even once in their lives, but then again, they weren't from Tuscany, which is a hell of a trek from Edinburgh and Cote Bridge, both in terms of distance and culture. Indeed, such was my granny's suspicion of the sun, that she never ate tomatoes or any other foreign food. Mr Lenti, whose first name is Mario, but given his age I always addressed him as Mr Lenti, and it feels right to continue to do so, was very helpful, if a little confused as to what I was doing, as he didn't understand who had given me his contact details. To be fair, he was born in 1924, so he's probably accumulated a lot of names in his memory down the years. He's the president of the Club Campanile, a Livorno supporters group, and explained to me their activities down the years. I've been a Livorno fan for about 17 years, and Il Campanile was founded in 1926 as an amateur football club. We kept it going till about 20 years ago, and had a few teams in different age groups. We won a lot of trophies, and obviously at the same time, we were Livorno supporters. To keep all those teams going needs a fair bit of cash though, so we have to stop them for financial reasons. Associazione Sportiva Livorno Calcio was founded in 1915 and play in dark claret, which in Italian is Amaranto, hence the team's nickname, Amaranti. Livorno, the city, was designed as an ideal town during the years of the Renaissance, although as previously noted, while they were doing this they didn't take into the account the needs of bored tourists in the 21st century. In the past it was also one of the most important ports in the Mediterranean, and had laws giving the right of freedom of religion, thus attracting a number of Jewish immigrants and Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin. In 1921, the Italian Communist Party was set up in Livorno. Following the Second World War, the city had mayors from the party until 1985, while the current incumbent in the role is from one of its offshoots, it having evolved in 1991. The team is also considered the most politically left-thinking Italian team, although as a quirk of history would have it, the stadium was originally named after Mussolini's daughter and built during his time. Nowadays, it's called the Stadio Armando Picchi and looks very much like a stadium built in 1933. Picchi would go on to make his name as a sweeper in the Grande Inter side of the 1960s, but started his career at Livorno. Seeing as I was visiting such a famously political team, 
I asked Mr Lenty how much this identity influenced the club and supporters. My second contact, Francesco, who we'll meet soon, had a different perspective. The Curva Nord was, is, and will always be close to the extreme left, and has a lot of activists inside it, who constantly have their eyes open to any social, economic or political problems that afflict the city and elsewhere. It's been a long time now since the majority of the supporters in the Curva gave militant politics the same importance as being a militant ultra, which clearly showed in our way of stadium life. After all, the Corva acts as a mirror for part of the society, and real life and its related problems can't be forgotten just because you go through the turnstiles. In the last few years, even though the leftist ideology definitely hasn't changed, the Corva expresses itself in political terms less frequently than before, and now only when it's absolutely necessary. One of the ways in which the Corva expresses itself in political terms is when they play a team with a reputation or history that leans to the right like the tower down the road in Pisa. Of course, the tower may also lean to the left depending on where you're standing, as with politics it's really just a matter of perspective. So, Francesco invited me to give a hand for Livorno's match against Hellas Verona that would take place a month or so after this game. Catching his drift, I gave a non-committal answer, as I'm really quite fond of my face in its current configuration, and as a 30-year-old, I really feel like I'm too old to go about looking for trouble. The Italian word for twin is gemello. Most teams have other clubs with whom their fans are friendly, and these relationships are known as gemellaggi, twinships, like there are with towns. For me, with my Scottish brain, I can't quite get my head around having any feelings for opposing teams and their fans other than dislike and a strong hope they get humped on match days. But hey, maybe I'm in the minority. It always helps when the other team isn't in your league or even your country, so that then you don't have to see their fans gurning faces twisted in joy as they score another goal against you. Livorno's fans are in luck then, because thanks to their political leanings, they have an international network of supporters, from France through Greece to Turkey, with Gemalagi, with Olympic Marseille and AEK Athens, among others. One of the most prominent of their foreign-based supporters groups is based in Germany, where its members don't seem to check or reply to their emails, but no matter. I checked out their website, which all seems very earnest and well-minded, so they get 10 points for effort, but less so for their mastery of the English language. As you might imagine, Livorno's fans aren't bosom buddies with teams whose supporters are more right-minded, so those of Inter and Verona can expect a spicy welcome. Lazio too. And famed peacemaker and level-headed chap Paolo Di Canio once made a fascist salute during a game between the two teams. Away from football and politics, the city rivalry between Livorno and Pisa is famed for its strength. This manifests itself in numerous examples of graffiti around Livorno of, in all capital letters, Pisa merda, fuck Pisa. There are a couple of expressions they use to bicker amongst themselves with Meglio un morto in casa che un pisano all'uscio, which translates as better a death at home than a pisan at the door. 
snapped back with Le parole, le portavie, il vento, le biciclette, i livornesi. Again, translates as words are whisked off by the wind and bikes by the livornese. Now, without wanting to offend citizens of either of the cities, neither one of them is anything to really write home about. And yes, I've seen the Leaning Tower and the hundreds of tourists all pretending to either prop it up or push it over while grinning for a photo. This rivalry is classic campanilismo. This is something that if you've ever read about Italy before, you'll surely have already come across. But for the uninitiated, campanile means bell tower or steeple. If you've been here, you will no doubt have noticed just how many churches there are. And so campanilismo is a love of or pride in your local area, i.e. the area in which you can hear your church bell tolling. In a country where many people are born and live most of their lives in the same house or street, and often with family members next door or in the building round the corner, the idea of home sweet home runs deep. This was certainly the case in previous generations, although the current financial crisis and high youth unemployment is forcing some younger people to venture further afield for work. And one thing that people love more than home comforts is someone or something to mistrust. How could you go wrong if your enemy was an entire town just down the road? Nothing like a common villain to build town unity and identity. And I certainly wouldn't encourage the people of Pisa and Livorno to unite, hold hands and sing songs, because life would be boring without a bit of grudge and bile, no? Plus, of course, the resulting burglaries and bicycle thefts would overstretch the respective police departments to breaking point. Following my interview with Mr Lenti, and after he'd made me a member of Il Campanile Supporters Club, I went back to wasting time in the bar. I did this so well that it got to the point that I had to run to catch the bus to the stadium. No being Portuguese this time, I've learned my lesson. Getting off with folk in Amaranto scarves, I then had to go collect my internet bot ticket. The map made it look just round a corner from the ground, but every corner I turned had a big metal gate blocking my path. Backtracking, I asked a policeman how to get to the ticket office, and so began a farce of a detour. I ended up walking about a mile out of my way to get the ticket, then once there, checking my watch made my palms begin to sweat, as I was running the risk of missing the start of the match, which simply wouldn't do. So, trying to jog in as casual a looking way as possible, I headed back round the stadium to the door to the Corva. This turned out to be a good idea, and I got there two minutes before kick-off, just in time to see the teams take to the pitch and Livorno concede the first goal. Parma's Biabiani wriggled about down the right and crossed for Palladino to volley in a lovely finish. Livorno looked a shower throughout the match, and the guys around me in the Corva Nord couldn't rouse their players. So much so, their midfielder Marco Biagianti got hooked after 25 minutes, and while he was heading off with his head down, got the ire of the fans, leaving him in no doubt as to where he should go and what he should do when he got there. His substitution didn't do much to improve his side's lot, and they continued to toil away, with Parma happy to nick the ball off them any time they looked even halfway dangerous. Second half was much the same as the first, with Parma happy to watch Livorno try to pass the ball about, while they soaked up the pressure without getting particularly stretched. The only two chances of a note for Livorno were spectacular. The first, a diving header from Piccini following a cross from the left, which, while getting maximum points for style, 
received few for execution, dealt with easily by the keeper as it was. And the second being a howitzer from Emerson, after he got bored of pussyfooting about. His dipping shot from 35 yards out getting tipped over the bar by Mirante in Parma's goal. This is something I've noticed before. Few players welly one from beyond the edge of the box. Perhaps it's my primitive Scottish footballing heritage showing through, but too many players here seem to have watched Arsenal faffing about too often. Sometimes, rather than complicating things with another pass, they just need to learn to put their foot through the ball. They'll never win anything otherwise, while Scotland march off in triumph with yet another bobble to add to the collection. Oh. On and on Livorno pushed, but to no avail, and Parma got a second, and then a third, right at the death, bookending the match nicely, in a synchronous sense, not for the Amaranti around me. A Maori, the big galoot, got both of them, upsetting my match-watching compatriots. I missed his second, though, so fleet-footed was I that I'd already left in order not to miss my train back home. At the stadium, I met my second contact for the game. I'd been told that he was a die-hard Livorno fan, and when I found him at the bar under the corva, the first thing he did was reach for my neck. Gulp. At this point, it should be recorded that my beard has multiple functions. To make me irresistibly sexy. To keep my precious face warm. To make me look a little bit older. And also, apparently, to stockpile fluff from my scarf. It was with regard to this final use that caused Francesco, for he was the contact, to reach in to remove a bit of fluff from my beard. Before our interview, he offered me a beer, to which I queried if there'd be alcohol in it. He gave me a look as if I'd just asked him for his top three far-right dictators, and said that of course there was. See, I asked because many stadia only sell alcohol-free beer, and when only the beer gets drunk, no one has a good time. Particularly when you're watching the dross that we were, so beer was a welcome mood-alterer. It'd be fair to say that the match we watched that day would not be remembered and reminisced over years later, except maybe by anyone at whose first experience of the stadium it had been, i.e. me. Mr Lenti and Francesco told me about theirs, and what being a supporter means to them. Mr Lenti first. I remember that in 34-35 there weren't a lot of us supporters, but we were a good group, and we were really happy because we finally had a stadium. Before that there was a Wii Stadium, which was part of the Naval Academy now. We were fairly amateur, even though we were in Serie A at the time. But yeah, when they built the new stadium, it was like having a new home. I'm a supporter more than a fan, because for me a supporter is one thing and a fan another. A fan can be someone from the team, from the directors and president, through to anyone from the city. A supporter, on the other hand, only thinks of one thing. Jersey, nothing else matters. And then Francesco. It was an away match because some of the first matches I went to were away trips. My memory of it is three stitches in the head from a policeman's truncheon. But it's a good one and it opened up a whole new world to me. Being a supporter means a lot of things. The fans in the team represent the city and we love our team and our city for good or bad. Of course, some seasons could have gone better and some worse, but our team represents the city of Livorno and so, therefore, us. I must add at this point that when Francesco was telling me about his first memory of the stadium, he said tre punti, at which point I grinned because I thought he was about to tell me his team had won 
and taking the three points. I don't know what he must have made of me, asking him if the beer had alcohol in it and smiling when he was telling me about being beaten by a policeman. Just so it's clear, by the time he'd finished his sentence, I'd realised what he was talking about and had duly contorted my grin into a frown. One person who'd remember this day for a while would be Davide Nicola, the Livorno coach at the end of the evening, but who would be fired by the time I went back to work on the Monday. His players never got going, and as run-down and not fit for purpose as the stadium is, the team was equally poor. Although he got his team promoted the season before, by the time this match rolled round, they were in the relegation zone and looking as listless as the Mary Celeste. Before leaving, Nicola told a press conference, If the fans don't want me anymore, and don't understand that what I've been doing has been for the good of Livorno, then I guess I've been wasting my time with everything I've done for the club. Taking the team immediately afterwards was the technical director Attilio Perotti, who had previously stated that he would never again be on the bench, my place is behind a desk. His appointment ended up being extremely temporary, however. At the press conference for his unveiling as coach, a group of ultras interrupted him to tell him, but politely addressing him using the lay form, you shouldn't have said yes to the job and now you have to resign. Perotti took this on board, changed his tune, and Domenico Di Carlo took his place and let him get back to pushing paper eight days later. Di Carlo didn't pull up any trees either, and before the season ended, Nicola was back, although they still finished in last place. This kind of fan influence isn't unheard of in the peninsula, although the frequency with which it happens isn't as often as you'd think. That said, it does stick in the mind, particularly for British fans of calcio and is nice and newsworthy for journalists. Can you imagine the same thing happening in Scotland or England? No, me neither. Given the age difference in my two interviewees, I figured they'd be able to give me a balanced idea of the fan club relationship under the ownership of the current president, Spinelli. Mr Lenti, who has seen his fair share of presidents come and go over the years, told me, Meanwhile, Francesco is from the heart of the Corva, with all its passion and fury, and told me this. A link basically doesn't exist anymore. Ten years ago it all changed. Before that there was a relationship with the president, to some degree. But since then, it's just been years of protests and disagreements. So now these connections are totally dead. We don't have our club nowadays, even if the management have brought us up and down in divisions, because the club don't love the players like we do. That's right and normal too, because the club is a business. However, us fans don't understand or recognise the business argument side of the team. So, both of them agree that something has got lost along the way. Francesco talked about the club as a business, and of course, businesses can't be run on emotion, which a lot of failed businessmen and football club owners down through the years would attest to. Livorno as a business aren't doing too well either, 
according to Spinelli, who said that he wouldn't keep spending his own money on the team and that come summer 2014, he'd pack up and look for a buyer. In what won't go down as one of the most inspiring rallying cries ever, following the dismissal of Nicola, the president said, I want to save the team because I'd like my exit to be clean. I've not lost hope, but there's the possibility that we'll go down. These things happen. The important thing is that the books are okay when I go. Not quite of the Winston Churchill, we will fight them on the beaches calibre. The team could really do with a hard-working star player in the mould of Cristiano Lucarelli. A local boy done good, over two spells with the Amaranti, he scored 111 goals in 188 games, and was named as Serie A's Capocannonieri, the top goalscorer, for 2005-2006. Seeing as the current players haven't exactly been setting the world on fire, I asked Mr Lenti and Francesco who their favourite players had been. Both replied without much thought. Igor Proti. Proti came to Livorno before he was 18 and would move on to play for the likes of Bari, Lazio and Napoli. While he was at Bari, he was joint top scorer in Serie A season 1995-96, along with Giuseppe Signori, in case you were wondering. He promised to come back to Livorno to finish his career, and he kept that promise. He became an icon of Livornese football. Mr Lenti told me, and indeed he did, for during his second spell with Livorno, he was the Capocannonieri three seasons in a row, the first two in Serie C and the final year in Serie B. In honour of his achievements, in 2005 Livorno announced that they would retire his shirt number. Proti, however, decided to keep his number 10 shirt available because, in his words, it's only fair that the kids can dream of playing in the number 10. The only other player to have had his shirt number retired was for altogether more tragic reasons. Pier Mario Morosini, a player on loan from Udinese, collapsed on the pitch and died from cardiac arrest during a match in 2012. His number 25 shirt is no longer used by Livorno, and a stand is named in his honour. And with that, Mr. Lenti's voice tailed off.